You're listening to the Mindful Psychology Podcast, a podcast designed to explore mindfulness, psychology, neuroscience, and various aspects of holistic health. My name is Jen. I'm your host. I'm also a therapist, an educator, and a yoga teacher. Join me and brilliant guests as we explore various topics and offer you actionable steps so that you can be informed and intentional about your health and well-being. Now sit back, relax, maybe take a notebook out, and let's dive in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Mindful Psychology Podcast. My name is Jen. I'm your host, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Ray Maisie. So, Dr. Ray Maisie, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone and tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, and all of that stuff. Sure. So, I'm a health psychologist. I'm located in Arizona, uh, in the Phoenix area, and I have been practicing since 2014. Um, I actually started out in a medical practice. Um, my husband's a physician, um, so I've been treating people within his practice and then also my practice, and I specialize in um, the psychological issues related to chronic medical conditions, as well as addiction and trauma and then I also see people who have uh, depression and anxiety and right now I've been doing mainly uh, teletherapy so I actually have licenses in Illinois and Arizona I've been um, seeing patients in both states Um, I do have a practice where I see people in person um, as well okay really interesting and how did you decide that you wanted to uh, did you always know that this, this is what you wanted your field of focus to be or so you know, when I was in graduate school, um, just because my husband has his own medical practice, I was always interested in just the psychological influences with people who have um, medical conditions. I saw so many patients who were dealing with, um, you know, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. GI disorders, uh, migraines, headaches, and so much of that was related to stress, anxiety, trauma. There was like such a huge psychological component. Um, oftentimes, I don't even think patients recognize that, you know, they just know that they're suffering, you know, physically, um, and they're looking for answers. Um, And so once they've kind of exhausted a lot of the medical, um, you know, routes that they could take for treatment, they often, you know, start thinking, okay, well, maybe this could be psychological. and, And that's, where my interests develop. Um, A lot of my training, though, was also around addiction. So I I did a fellowship and my um, postgraduate work in addiction. So um, that's kind of where the addiction piece, you know, came in as well. And then, um, and because so many people with addiction and with chronic health conditions that are you know, have this psychological issue. Um, a lot of them deal with trauma. I mean, it's a majority of the people I work with have some kind of traumatic past. Um, and then they're also kind of dealing with depression, anxiety, you know, anger, like all those other emotions just tied in with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'd like to actually look at both of those and then also look at the crossover if, you, if you're happy with that. Yeah. Um, so starting with the, 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 the first part, so the medical part and what you found and all of that. So what, what, does, what does that look like for patients? So that when they realize that they've exhausted all their options, you said, they start to think that maybe other things could help. Like what are some of those things that they sometimes consider? 
Yeah, you know, a lot of times um, they recognize that they're dealing with stress or anxiety or, you know, but sometimes they don't make the connection that that could actually be contributing to their health conditions. So, um, for instance, people with GI disorders like irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of times the symptoms of that can be traced back to um, stress. So once they start to, you know, oftentimes it's just in talking with me and we'll kind of like map out like, okay, have you noticed that, you know, your flare-ups are kind of connected to um, times when you're over, you know, overstressed, when you're, you know, dealing with high levels of anxiety. And so when you start to make those connections for them, where basically there's, you know, some type of trigger in their life, and then there's this subsequent um, flare-up, or, you know, they start having symptoms, then they start to kind of realize like, oh, I, okay, I could see, you know, where those connections are. Same thing, you know, with people where I work with, with headaches or migraines, they'll often notice that there's certain triggers in their environment that is causing a stressful reaction that then leads to having some kind of um, episode, you know, whether it's a, a migraine or, you know, a, a severe headache. Um, same with pain, mm. you know, pain we think of as such a, like a, a physical condition, but there's a lot of psychological influences over pain and cognitively how it's interpreted. Um, and also just the influence of, you know, how pain is experienced based on, um, their psychology. So like I said, sometimes, a lot of times it's just, helping people just make those connections. And then from there, we can kind of talk about, you know, treatment. Um, it's not to say that, you know, psychological therapy can completely, you know, get rid of pain or completely get rid of migraines, but it's a really great um, tool in their toolbox. So I often find that, you know, people who are dealing with these, they will often have their medical healthcare providers. And then I just become kind of part of the, the treatment team. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I like that. And I mean, I know this is maybe a bit of a difficult question to answer. So let's, let's try. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for example, if, it, if we're dealing with migraines, for example, mm -hmm. um, and maybe they're on medication or something, or they have a, some kind of treatment plan, do you find that the medication affects how effective the psychological therapy can be or how the, um, like how your work helps them? So if they're, you know, if they're, they're on medication that's helping with the migraines. Often the psychological therapy will kind of be a good adjunct to help reduce the severity of the symptoms or the frequency of their migraines. Mm -hmm. um, there are some, you know, times where um, patients will actually work with their healthcare providers because they have um, much better control and they may taper off with certain medications. So I have seen that happen before. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that's always a possibility, but that's why it's just so important that whatever healthcare provider they have, that they're kind of communicating with them about changes because, you know, the psychological therapies could absolutely change, you know, your, your health. And so mm -hmm. it's going to impact sometimes the, um, the frequency or the, you know, the dosing of medications for some people. Yeah. That's super interesting, isn't it? I yeah. That's really yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, it's amazing. I think, you know, we've kept the kind of medical versus, you know, the, the mind versus body. We hear that all the time, mm -hmm. but to me, and I've even like caught myself saying that mind versus body, but 
it's really all the same, you know, mm -hmm. and I think too, a lot in psychology, we talk about brain-based therapies. Like, you know, it's not just that we're working on some kind of elusive, you know, psychology in our brain doing treatment. Like it actually, a lot of the therapies like have actual, you know, like um, physical manifestations, you know, whether it's your health or there's act, like truly changes that take place neurologically, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I love that. And even what you said about the way that we interpret pain and the way that we, you know, mm -hmm. the way that we understand pain. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? I don't even have a specific question. I'm just really interested. <laughs> in yeah. Well, pain, you know, is very much, um, you know, the brain is the, the one of the main centers that receives signals of pain um, from the sensory organs um, and from nerves. And so, you know, there's an interpretation of pain. And I think that a lot of research has found that, you know, you can actually, by your, how you look at pain, both, like I said, cognitively and the coping skills that you develop, you can change the nature of the, the pain. It's not to say, like, you know, if you stub your toe, that you're just going to be able to just turn it off like that and the pain will go away. But it's, it's especially true for people who are dealing with, like, chronic pain. Um, and so, you know, they've incorporated a lot more um, therapy especially like cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based therapies in helping people kind of manage pain and reduce the intensity or the perceived intensity of that pain. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really, I, and I, and I in, in just thinking back on what you said before, like how you caught yourself saying mind over body and things like that. And it is yeah. really interesting, right? I think a lot of the time we think, no, our bodies, you know, our minds will continue and, and our bodies will listen to our minds. But a lot of the time, I don't know, it's all very, very linked. And I agree that it's all the same thing in the end, isn't it? Like it's, yeah, which one comes first or which one obeys which, you know, <laughs> or which one, right. to which one, but um, definitely yeah. liking the the like the therapies that do emphasize that link like you said the the cognitive behavioral therapy and the mindfulness-based therapies and that's really mm -hmm. interesting too and then okay so if we shift to addiction and all of that stuff so how does i mean you so you mentioned your your fellowship and your studies in in with addiction and all of that but are there any links that you find between these two things like that what we've discussed although brief um do you find any of these aspects in addiction as well um in terms of the way that you know they might be having medical treatment sometimes or or do you do you see any patients who are who are struggling with addiction who are also seeing medical treatment and working with you like how does that show up in your practice yeah definitely so one of the the most notable obviously are people who get um who have an opioid addiction so you know unfortunately we're kind of in an opioid crisis so we often see patients who um, maybe started out on some painkillers you know possibly they had an injury or some kind of you know illness they started taking uh, medication for it you know some type of painkiller and um, and then from there they've found that they um, became addicted. I mean, and that's, um, and then sometimes that could even lead to more like, you know, illegal drug use. Um, they start incorporating, a, a, you know, other um, 
drugs, alcohol, smoking, things like that. So a lot of times people with addiction often do have um, chronic health conditions. I see that a lot, um, especially when I was working um, like in residential treatment. So there, there is, you know, a, a connection with that. The other thing too is that you know, um, especially when you're talking about opioid addiction, it influences um, how your brain perceives pain. So sometimes what will happen is someone finds that, you know, they're, they're taking Vicodin or they're taking, you know, some medication and then they need to take more and more. They start developing, you know, tolerance over it. So they need more and more of it um, in order to control the pain. So that becomes, um, and the same thing can happen too with, you know, with, with alcohol, sometimes people start drinking so that they could avoid the pain, you know, whether it's psychological, whether it's physical. So addictive substances can, you know, offer up in the short term a relief, but, you know, unfortunately there's just those consequences and then it be can become like a, a real problem. Um, you know, and, and they just feel like they need those substances to just, relieve some of the the pain but unfortunately like i said over time that tolerance develops and then they just they, they need more and more so that's that's where there's just this overlap between you know the the medical conditions and then the um the addiction yeah yeah okay that makes sense and i think also like a common question that i get asked about addictions and all that stuff um it's not an area where i specialize but uh, a common question is like how come some people get addicted to things and other people don't is it a personality thing is it a genetic thing is it um related to some type of past trauma uh you know what is it that creates this this issue and then you know a lot of the time if, if it's their partner or their families are really struggling to tell them or to get through to them and, and help them and they just wonder like you know why is it hard for them and it creates a lot of conflict in a relationship a, you know familial relationship a friend relationship any type really um, and they really struggle and, and it can be even for smoking for example I'm just thinking mm -hmm. that one is common the person who doesn't smoke being like well just stop smoking I don't get it just stop it's not even good for you so on and so forth so what what happens there like what what I know there were a few questions there. I guess we could start yeah. with what <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Let me write these down. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. Like, like let's okay. start with maybe understanding a little bit more about why the addiction happens, right? Like, you know, let's start with that. Yeah. So I think one way of looking at it, I like using like a biopsychosocial model mm -hmm. when you look at addiction because truly it's biological it's there's social influences and then there's psychological influences so from the biology part what they found is that addiction does tend to run in in families like there's definitely a genetic load to addiction it's not to say you know like okay my father was addicted like i definitely will become addic addicted but um there's certain you know genetic pathways that um, that tend to run in families so a lot of times when I see people it's amazing how many you know I'll say okay you know was anyone else addicted oh yeah my father my mother you know my cousin I mean it, it often tends to run in families so there's this saying that you know genetics loads the gun and your environment pulls the trigger so yeah. then there's the environment component too right so you may have um, this you know genetic influence on on having addictive pathways um, or behaviors develop so you're, you're kind of at risk there 
your environment has an influence in, you know, starting from your childhood. So one thing I often see are that a lot of times people with addiction have traumatic pasts. Um, I mean, it's the majority of people. Some are more severe than others. So, you know, addiction I often see is it's often a coping skill. It's not a very good one, but it's one to relieve really distressing feelings. It's one to kind of escape, you know, you use it as a way to regulate your emotions. And so people who have really traumatic pasts or had very difficult things happen to them, um, you know, they are more at risk for developing an addiction. Then the other part of it too is just your, you know, your other, the, the cultural environment, your social environment, you know, were drugs more readily available? You know, what were some of the cultural messages that you were getting about them? So there's also that influence, you know, as well. Were your peers using drugs? Um, so unfortunately, yeah, addiction is so complicated, you know, and I do get this a lot, the question of like, well, why did I become addicted? And there's really no one answer, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, it's so complicated, just like humans are complicated, you know, um, it's probably multifactorial. There's just so many things that kind of went into that. And, um, and so really, you know, it's like, Yes, you know, the, the why is important, but it's more, okay, how do we get, you know, move you past that and get you to overcome your addiction? Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. And I, I like the saying, I mean, it's, I feel like weird saying that I like the saying with the gun and the loading and the... <laughs> But yeah. you know what I mean, I, I thought that was pretty clever. Um, yeah. <laughs> it makes perfect sense, no, for sure. And I think also um, we can ask ourselves that about so many things, right? Like, why do I have anxiety? Why do I have like right. all kinds of reasons why or all kinds of links after the fact, right? But you could have just as easily gone the other way and then you wouldn't even have looked at those other facts, right? Like it's always after the fact that we, that we, always, that we say, oh, well, I think it's because of this and it's because of that. It gives context, but it doesn't really offer up a solution a lot of the time right so yeah yeah like sometimes you know you think of the metaphor like you know if your your tire goes flat and you know it has a nail in it you're not like wow gosh why'd that happen you know why did I get the nail it's like no okay I need to fix the tire but you know it truly though in in therapy I mean it is about the why I mean that is a big component of it too but Sure. No, sure. Um, and, but I th and I think it's also our way of making sense of it, right? Like we, we like to yes. understand why something happened and we like to think that, well, maybe if I understand why I can fix it more. Um, but that doesn't usually, I mean, it's good to understand, but again, there's like a whole new set of, of considerations after when you're thinking of moving forward, right? Like it's not your long-term solution. Like that's not your blueprint for, for moving forward. <laughs> right. Right. And I, I think too, it also depends on, um, like when I think about it in terms of just when you're in, you know, in, in counseling, it, it also depends too on kind of what treatment modality you're using. Mm. So, you know, if you're more like, um, the psychodynamic, you know, where, you know, you explore things for years and years and you're trying to uncover like unconscious motivations and all of that. The why is really important, course, you know, yeah. but then you versus something like cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that is more like, okay, how do we fix it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like what are some tools and techniques can we do? So it also just depends on like what approach you're, you know, you're taking to, I think mm -hmm. that matters. Yeah, definitely. Actually, as I was saying it, I was thinking, I was just thinking of the, the, the people who will just go over the same thing or not over the same things, but they will unpack it 
and look at why for so long. Um, right when yeah. I was saying it, I was like, no, no, wait, wait, hang on a second. Um, <laughs> right, but right. Also, yeah, but also right in CBT, like it will be a lot more about well, what do we do from here? Um, so that's that's really interesting. Have you found that one particular particular modality is best for for addiction, or do you think it depends on the person? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously biased because I'm going to say the ones that I use, but, um, you know, I, so I use, um, pretty much four modalities. Um, so I use cognitive behavioral therapy and then I use acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, um, kind of developed out of CBT, but also incorporates a lot of mindfulness, acceptance, like values, exploration. Mm -hmm. I just feel like there's some really good components of ACT that I really like. And then I do, um, EMDR. So I do eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy that works really well with people who have, um, traumatic pass. Um, also, it can be used specifically for addictions. Um, and then I also do hypnosis. Um, okay. So I, you know, it just depends on kind of what the person is coming for. Um, to be honest, I really incorporate almost all of those when I'm working with someone. I really find that I'm like, okay, I'm just using CBT or I'm just doing that. And there are there are people who do, um, like they specialize in one treatment modality and, and that works for them. I, just from a research perspective, I know that for addiction, like CBT and ACT have a lot, a lot of... Um, of research backing, you know, um, treatment efficacy with mm -hmm. addiction. So um, that, that one, there is some with EMDR as well. Definitely working with like the trauma of addiction. I mean, that, that works really well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And uh, for those who, who might not know uh, how, how the EMDR works, um, how would you explain it in a nutshell, if you could? <laughs> in a yeah. yeah, so basically EMDR is about reprocessing very traumatic um, memories, and it uses what they call um, bilateral stimulation, which is basically in the form of eye movement, so your eyes going back and forth, or it might be tapping from left to right, left to right, audio, left to right, left to right, and that's the idea behind um, the bilateral stimulation is that it's supposed to facilitate processing a very traumatic events. Um, and it uses this idea of, you know, you're basically talking about your traumatic past in the present, uh, keeping you grounded in the present while being able to kind of take you back in the past. So the, the bilateral stimulation kind of helps you, you do that. But um, it's a brain-based therapy in that it's really digging into you know, your memories and helping you reprocess them so that they're just not so traumatic anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, it incorporates um, like left to right hemispheric processing as, as well. So it's a very much um, a brain-based kind of memory processing uh, technique. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Like yeah, 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 and it does it it does use some components of like cognitive kind of restructuring in the sense that um, when you're going through um, EMD ther EMDR therapy, you know, you're asked to identify like we call it negative cognition, but it's like negative thoughts that you have, and what would you like to think of your you know yourself, and it also uses a lot of like. Um, 
asking you to check in on your body sensations as well. So it kind of gets at it from your memory, from your body sensations and, you know, your thought processes. It's a, it's a very a more structured um, mm -hmm. than some other therapies. So it's actually with eight phase therapy. Um, so, you know, in every phase you're doing something specific and sometimes you go back to other phases, but um, there's, it, you know, there's like a protocol that you, um, that you undergo when you go through EMDR. Mm -hmm. that, well, that must be also particularly helpful for victims of trauma. I mean, yeah, that, that's really interesting. And then for those who might not be too familiar with CBT and the acceptance and commitment therapy, how would you describe those? <laughs> so cognitive behavioral therapy is obviously in the name. So you're working on restructuring the cognitive, so your thoughts, to ultimately change your behavior. So the idea behind CBT is that, you know, you from your childhood, from your life experiences, develop these core beliefs about yourself. So, you know, um, when they're bad, they may be like things like, I'm a failure, I'm unlovable, things like that. Those then trigger, you know, subsequent kind of thoughts, which then trigger certain emotions. So you may then subsequently feel sad or depressed or anxious. Um, and then those will trigger behaviors like avoidance behaviors or, mm -hmm. you know, not wanting to go to work or getting into fights with others. So, um, basically you start to learn how to restructure your thoughts. They call it like cognitive reframing, um, identifying those negative thoughts and restructuring them so that you feel better. And then ultimately your behaviors are better. Um, ACT is, um, it's, so it's acceptance and commitment therapy. So it's this idea of, you know, <clears throat> being able to better accept your experience, um, using techniques like mindfulness, um, instead of using cognitive restructuring, so changing your thoughts, act as much more about accepting your thoughts, not trying to push them away, you know, so, so that's obviously where a lot of the mindfulness comes into, but just noticing your thoughts, not trying to push them away. And just realizing that, you know, you're not your mind, right? Like you're not the, all the thoughts in, yeah. that come up from your mind, right? Um, and it, it incorporates a lot of values exploration. So, you know, like what is important in your life? Like why even do all this therapy, right? Like mm -hmm. what, what do you want to do in your life, you know? And it looks at different domains. So what do you want to do in your work life, in your family? life and your social life, you know, and, and kind of going through and then also setting goals. So it's a, it's also a very future-based therapy too, which I really like. And I think too, when you're talking about people who are either dealing with addiction or chronic health conditions or traumatic past, like, w you know, why do all this? Like, let's talk about where you want to be and kind of what you want your life to look like. And then another part of ACT is, um, this idea of acceptance, you know, of just, yeah, like ACT does not promise that it will, yeah, that it will get rid of depression and anxiety. It's more like, how do you live with that knowing that you want to go to this place? So they do it through this idea, they call it like psychological flexibility of saying, you know, like, let's have a better relationship with our psychology, with our state so that we can, you know, take some of that, we can feel some of those distressing feelings, just allow them to be there while moving in a direction that you want to be in. So, yeah. I really, like that. I really, really like that. I like the way they all kind of work together so well. 
I like they that. do. Yeah. And I think that's why I like incorporating them into, um, you know, into my sessions, like little bits and, and pieces. And some people don't like to do that. You know, they're like purists. They're like CBT purists, there's ag purists, and then there's EMDR purists. And that's all that they do. So it just kind of just depends on, you know, what works for you. Yeah, no, definitely. I've had, I mean, I do a lot of CBT work, which is technically like what I originally specialized in, quote unquote, like what, what it was originally, but then introducing like mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I know that sometimes people will say like, I don't want any of the mindfulness fluff. Like I just want CBT. Mm. And so I'm like, okay, sure, sure, sure. I, I love the way they work. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I get that too. Oh, I'm sorry to me. No, 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 that was it. That was it. I just, I get that too. Sometimes when I first bring up mindfulness, I think there's some people have this thought, yeah, like fluff, right? Or, or like, I don't want to become a Buddhist or, (laughs) you know, or, um, and so there's a lot of like education. I think that's important when you're talking about mindfulness. I find just experiential like exercises work well, just like, let's do, you know, a mindfulness exercise or, you know, show some videos or things like that. Cause yeah, people, there's definitely a, um, some people have some biases towards what mindfulness yeah. is. And yet I think it's so powerful. Like i I just think it's so powerful. I agree. I have to really agree. I mean, we're not picking favorites here, obviously, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But but I also find it just so, and this is not because, I mean, CBT is brilliant, right? I love it, right? But it's, but but mindfulness, I don't know, it just creates so much space. I find it just creates, it lays the, the groundwork, I find. Um, the mindfulness aspect of it, right? Like it's, yeah. So, I don't know. I always just find it creates the space. That's that's how I describe it. It creates a lot of space. I find that with movement too, like yoga and just moving a little bit, creating that space, letting go of tensions, creates the space for the other things to be more effective. I find. But uh, do you do you find that as well? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's to me, it's more like just a mindset, you know, because some people will say like, oh, okay, so I'll practice mindfulness five minutes a day, you know, and, and to me, yeah. it's more a whole way of just your experience. Um, you know, am I mindful all, all the time 24 seven? Like, no, absolutely not. But, um, you know, it's, it's a way of just you know, um, interacting with your mental state. And so it's just really a state of being, you know, and, um, you know, some people can use it a lot more, you know, during the day, but a lot of times, you know, I'll get activated and I'll just be like, I'll just check in internally and just like, you know, maybe take some deep breaths, you know, have a little bit more acceptance and, um, Mm. you know, just allows you just to, to check in. And I would think, yeah, with yoga, it'd be such a great adjunct, you know, to like body-based therapies. It can be for sure. I think, I mean, not for everyone, of course, but, you know, sometimes even just certain sequence of movements can really help, again, set the, set the tone for some pretty powerful work afterward. But of course it's not for everyone and not everybody wants to, to do that. And that's, you know, especially, um, you know, I, I get it, but some poses can make people pretty emotional. Like just as a side note, like there are some poses that notoriously make people tear. <laughs> so really? It can really uh, open up some areas, especially like hip openers and women is particularly like, and that kind of work. But I did want to say about the mindfulness, what you said that it's a, a state of mind. I love the distinction you made between like, okay, I'll do five, 10 minutes of mindfulness today. It's true that I, I that troubles me too. Um, that idea that you'll take five, 10 minutes to be mindful. Yes, it's better than nothing, but it's more about incorporating into your life rather than making it like another task you have to accomplish. 
Um, yeah. You know, I, I, so I like that you even pointed that out because that's so true. I, yeah. Um, do you find that? Like, yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's where the education piece comes in. And, um, and that's why it's hard, like for mindfulness, it's not usually something I just will work on for one session. It's kind of something you have to like interweave constantly, you know, and just like, oh yeah, you know, no, I, I might not even say the word mindfulness, you know, but you just are trying to teach people to, to be more, my, you know, mindful of their experience. And, you know, like I said, have some more acceptance and compassion of their, um, of their internal state. But um I, it does take some time to really, you know, teach people, some people like, yeah, it's not something that, you know, you just get an app and then you just do for a couple minutes a day. It, at least I don't think that that's the most effective way that you can use it. Um, and the reason why I say that too is especially like if you're talking about someone who's dealing with addiction or, you know, chronic medical conditions, like you almost like the it's most effective when you're constantly using it, especially like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm noticing I'm getting an urge. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to let this urge just ride out. You know, they start to have this internal dialogue that's much more mindful. Um, and, and so it's most effective, I think, when you can just kind of constantly use it. Yeah, well, yeah. And especially, like you made me think, it's, it's especially when you're feeling a particular way, if your go-to is not, or like if your distress management, for example, is not, doesn't involve mindfulness, for example, you, you're for sure when you're distressed, not going to want to go and be mindful if it's so separate from what you're doing. If you keep it as this separate thing, you're not going to think, oh, let me go be mindful now. You're distressed and what you want to do is the other things that you do. But if it's incorporated, kind of, if it's weaved into your life, it's more of your immediate response eventually, right? Like it's it's more of something yeah. that you can straight away, I find. But yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if you could just, and I think that's a thing, it's kind of, it's like a skill. So once you can do it and, you know, you just, you continue doing it, um, I think it then becomes more easier, you know, and then you just can become more mindful just all the time. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. And I think it's also hard to unexperience that and unteach it, right? Like, it's hard to not bring yeah. it into the work that you do, right? You're like, okay, you might not want me to say, like you said, you might not want me to say the word mindfulness, but I'm going to find a way to like, right. be a little bit more aware of what's happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes you do need to use a little bit of language because, yeah, sometimes I can just tell, like, I'll bring up the word mindfulness and you kind of get that look like, oh, no, you're not taking me there. So you have to use, yeah. like, different language and, um, yeah. Definitely. I find that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, but it's such, and I think it's because there's so much talk about it out there as well, um, that it's just, on one hand, yes, it is the app for a lot of people, right? And they might even look at the app a certain way and, uh, mm -hmm. and then not want that, but then they think all of mindfulness is that, right? They think it's all about sitting down and breathing five minutes a day or whatever it is. Right. So like you said, yeah. education around the topic is really important. And speaking of which, I didn't forget that you mentioned hypnosis. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the hypnosis as well. So if you had to explain that to, to people who don't know necessarily what hypnosis is or how it can help with uh, some of the treatments that you offer, how does it work? So with hypnosis is, um, you know, you're t typically guided by a hypnotherapist and first they bring you into a state of deep relaxation. Um, they call it like a trance-like state. So it's similar to like when you're falling, about to fall asleep, you know, you're just very relaxed. 
um, and you may not even almost be aware of what's going on, you know, um, externally in, in your environment. Um, and then at that point, um, the you know hypnotherapist will provide certain suggestions that are based on whatever your therapeutic focus is. So, for instance, it might be you know to stop smoking. It might be for fear of public speaking. It could be you know for numerous things you can use hypnosis for. And those suggestions, the idea is that when you're offered certain suggestions in a in a specific way, that they'll kind of um, be embedded into your subconscious. So you're, you're, you know, hearing them and then they're embedded into your subconscious with the hopes that then that will lead to behavior change. Um, and some people are able to do hypnosis like one or two sessions and, you know, they're, they're just completely cured. You know, um, it works really well for, like I said, smoking cessation, but really hip, hypnosis, um, has been used for, you know, insomnia, anxiety, depression, self-confidence, uh, phobias that can work really well with weight loss, things where there's like um, a specific behavior change. Um, and so, and, you know, some people can get into deeper trance-like states than others. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, um, I, I will sometimes do, I usually don't do just hypnosis sessions. Sometimes I'll do it as just like one or two sessions, you know, um, if someone's interested. So I'll kind of, in, again, incorporate it into all the other therapeutic techniques that I do as well. Yeah. I feel like you have a real powerhouse of tools to help people. <laughs> I really do feel that. I, I, hope so. <laughs> I feel like those are I don't, the best ones. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I, for me, I like to have a lot of different tools at my disposal, but, um, but you, you know, you obviously have to be careful too, that you're not like, you know, um, like, you, you know, you're not good at one thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah no, jack of all trades. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. No, I see what you mean. I think, <laughs> but I think also the fact that you understand how to like piece them together is also the unique spin that you that you offer right it's that 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 added bonus you're not just like oh a little bit of this a little bit of that with no rhyme or reason right yeah and i find you know like some people for instance have a real hard time with emdr and doing that bilateral stimulation like with eye movements or tap like they just can't get into it um some people don't like hypnosis because of just the the cultural like connections you know of like stage hypnosis or you I know so that, yeah <laughs> yeah like they're like i don't want you to make me you know like jump around like a monkey or something so or do anything weird so um yeah so it, i think it's good to just have like you know alternative techniques you know that are kind of fit with, with um someone's preference yeah definitely it's, well you can't fix everything with just a hammer right <laughs> right, right <exactly. laughs> um, no, no no i'm sorry but i completely understand what you mean definitely i think that complementary therapies especially when 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 you can make them complementary which is up to the therapist in my opinion too um yeah how to make them work together i think that's really important um yeah um i guess my my next question or my near to near to last question would be if someone knows someone that they think might have an addiction or if they themselves have an addiction like what's what can they do to begin like is there something that they can do in their everyday life or should they reach out to someone immediately uh, what are some of their options yeah, I mean, I think, you know, being honest and open with that person um, is very important. Now, sometimes you have to be 
cognizant of the fact that they may be very defensive, especially if they're in denial, right? So there is some finesse about like, how do you talk to someone who has an addiction? Um, some people are just in kind of um, different stages of change of where they're at. Like I said, some people are just don't feel like they need to change anything. They're more in denial. Other people know that they have a problem. They just don't know how to seek help. So, um, but like I said, you know, as a family member or friend or whatever, I think just having those open, you know, lines of communication are really important. And then maybe helping that person find support. So, it's very difficult, especially with, you know, someone who's been dealing with addiction for a very long time to self-recover, you know, to kind of just do it by themselves. It's not to say that it can't be done, but, you know, professional help is usually very helpful. So maybe just identifying resources for them, you know, um, doing some of that legwork, like, hey, you know what, I found, you know, these people who specialize in this, you know, here, here's their information, you know, kind of helping them get to that point. Um, some people do really well with like, um, you know, Alcohol Anonymous, Narcotic Anonymous. So if that's, you know, where they want to start, you know, maybe finding meetings that they can attend. Um, so I think it's just, you know, like I said, being open, being honest, and then helping them find um, the support that they need. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was really helpful. And what if they want to connect with you in some way? Is there a way that you, they can connect with you um, in some way? Yeah. So the best way to connect with me is really on my website. So it's www.evolutions.com bh.com so it's like evolution sbh.com um, from there you can schedule an appointment you can um, you know start a text message with me um, that's probably the best way cool. all right well I'll add I'll add the links to the show notes but uh, just wanted to give everybody a heads up for what they should look out for if they wanted to uh, connect thank with you and um, I guess that's oh is there anything else that you have going on right now uh, everything can be found on your website yeah, pretty much everything could be found um, on my website. Um, like I said, right now I'm doing a lot of teletherapy. I do have some in-person sessions um, available at my office in, in Chandler. But um, but yeah, I'm available for counseling. Wonderful. Okay, good. <laughs> I think some people are going to be happy to hear that. So. Yeah, oh, thank you. <laughs> This was a great discussion. Thank you so much for having me. so good. Thank you so much for everything and for providing all the information. Great. You're welcome. Thank you.